1: This
0: isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. It became kind of a political meme in the past year that everybody should believe in science. But what does that mean to believe in science? What does this mean to a scientist? What does it mean to a politician? What does it mean to me? What does it mean for religion? So Brian Keating, who, of course, as you might remember, he almost won the Nobel Prize. He still might win it. He's a super physicist at the University of California in San Diego. And Brian, who is a major scientist, he is skeptical about what it means to believe in science. He thinks that's anti-science to say you should believe in science. And he's not saying this politically. He kind of opened my eyes as to what science really is. And so this, along with many other fascinating topics is part of this podcast you're about to listen to thank you for listening first off what does politics have to do with astronomy whether you're very liberal or very conservative why should it have any bearing at all on whether a scientific paper is published
1: Yeah, not only a scientific paper, but just associating with people who themselves might have a different political opinion. That was enough to, uh, you know, force the cancellation cover of the original printing of my book's cover was basically taken down because the person who took the photograph didn't like the fact that I went on some conservative, you know, what he considered right-wing news sources like Prager University. Glenn Beck and so forth. And I I pointed out, you know, I went on NPR, went on PBS. (laughs) These are not right-wing conservative outlets. Yeah, that's
0: just it, is that I used to go on like Glenn Beck all the time and it was no big deal. Cause like you said, i go on MSNBC also. i go on PBS, I'd go on NPR. But now like when I've been on Glenn Beck recently, everyone's, oh, you've got to watch the company you keep. Why? Glenn's a good guy. So what? His political opinions are different than other people's. His political opinions are different than Republicans. He goes back and forth on a lot of different issues.
1: That's right. Our mutual friend Eric Weinstein went on Glenn Beck's TV show and he's a vehemently anti-Trump, anti-conservative. He considered himself left-wing progressive. And he was on Glenn Beck's show and he said, you know, what happens is people won't invite him anymore from the left. The New York Times used to do you know, pieces on him all the time in the intellectual dark web you know, just comprised almost exclusively of people on the left, like Sam Harris and Barry Weiss and people like that. And then ever since kind of 2019, 2020, the left stopped inviting him at all and basically froze him out. And this is according to Eric on his podcast and his discussion, the portal. And then Eric said, and then they used... The confirmation bias effect, which we've talked about many times, which is that oh, you see this guy, he goes on Glenn Beck, and he only go he goes on Ben Shapiro show, and so it just leads to this cancellation kind of flywheel uh, that won't stop spinning and grinding until there's nobody left. So it's a self, you know, reinforcing mentality. So he was on Glenn Beck, and uh, you know he said, you know, here are these anti-conservative positions, here's the evil and, and damage that Trump has done, and he said, I'm finally going to just go on all these right-wing quote-unquote shows. Because the left won't have it, and they're the censorious ones. I always say, my joke is, there's no democratic constellation, no right-wing asteroid. And for that reason, I think people always like to meet astronomers. They love having something that's apolitical, unbiased, and they love getting horoscopes. And I always tell them, the horoscope, the first one's free, but the next one costs you. It's true. It's like a drug. (laughs) <laughs> I did I did a Prager University video about Galileo and his book The Dialogue which I have some news to report and this is first time aired on a podcast before but you encouraged me James to skip the line as it were and I was like I love this book by Galileo but it's so hard I can't like I can't sit there and read it there's no audiobook of it I had to read it to do this Prager University uh, book club with Michael Knowles who is a super right-wing conservative guy a really hilarious guy <clears throat> and uh, a lot of fun, very intellectual, Yale educated, has his own show. Anyway, so he and I did this and I was like, God, I gotta get the audiobook. Looked it up, no audiobook exists. Worse than that, there is an ebook, but the ebook is of the wrong book by Galileo. So mm-hmm. imagine James, skip the line, comes out. I'm so excited. I already pre-ordered it and in, in multiple Thank you very formats. Much. I got it in, in, in audiobook on pre-order. I got it in hard copy. I got it in the Sanskrit translation on cuneiform tablets. I cannot wait. That was a hard negotiation with those llamas. <laughs> so I told, uh, so I got it all, but imagine I order it. I can't wait. It shows up and it's, you know, think like a billionaire, which is a great book, but it's not the book I ordered. Right. That's what you get. If you go to uh, Kindle right now, you go to Amazon and after you buy losing the Nobel prize and, and skip the line, you get, try to get the dialogue on two world systems. You actually get another book, Shame of Shames called The Discoursi, which is an amazing book too. It was actually Galileo's book that he wrote after he was tortured and imprisoned. We know that's not true, but if you have to wonder that if that's true or not, just consider the fact that he wrote a magnificent, perhaps his magnum opus while quote unquote, tortured in jail, et cetera. So that that proves that's false. but.
0: It's an interesting, by the way, it's an interesting topic to study the people who have either written great books while in jail or at least infamous books while in jail or have created other kind of society changing innovations while in jail. So like Pilates, for instance, was discovered by not discovered, but created by Joseph Pilates when he was a war prisoner
1: somewhere. Oh, really?
0: Yeah. yeah. And of course, uh, didn't Hitler write Mein Kampf in jail? I was just going to say,
1: that was the original title of Choose Yourself, wasn't it? My story? Um, I struggle. <laughs> I decided it was a little too politically uh, inappropriate. So yeah, you, so you encouraged me. You're like, why don't you just do it yourself? And I was like, oh man, I can't get the rights. I can't read it myself. Meanwhile, I've been able to get not only dozens of people, say, going on my podcast on the Into the Impossible podcast, listening to my episodes about it, and then asking how they can help and whatever. I'm getting people from Italy because I want to have the dialogue, as you might know, is written in the form of a dialogue, a conversation between kind of a genius who is representing what Galileo's ideas were about the Copernican hypothesis, which is one of the systems of the universe. And that was the notion that the Earth is in orbit around the sun. Then there was the, the simpleton, simplicio, who was basically parroting the lines of not only Aristotle and Ptolemy and all the previous you know 2,000 years before Galileo's book, but also the words that the Pope had authorized Galileo to speak. You know, pretty not not too you know politically correct to put here's my book. Skip the line with this moron and let, let's call him Joe Biden or I pick my governor Gavin Newsom. That would not be too bright for me to do such an impolitic thing. And then there's an intermediary, a just an educated layperson, and he makes these decisions. So I was looking for like. You know, am I going to read it, you know, in Galileo's voice? How am I going to do it? And I was going to sit there and read it from a piece of paper. It was brutal because as they said, the only ebook that exists is the wrong book, which is another great book. But that actually gave me another idea, which I'll get to in a second. So I called in some friends and I was like, do you know anybody who owns the definitive translation of this book? Because the only translation. By the
0: way, if the definitive translation was done, you know, a hundred years ago, then it's public domain.
1: It wasn't though. Yeah, the definitive translation was done in the 60s and 50s and the rights to which were owned by the author's estate, but also by the University of California Press, which turned out to be very fortuitous for me because I am at the University of California, San Diego. Not that that was a lock by any means, But I started to pursue things and I was like, let's just see what's the easiest way to do it. So I could read it from the the only existing English translation that's public domain is from 1690 or something like that. And, you know, it was so annoying back then, James. So you can get the ebook online. You're like, awesome. I don't have to, like, get the rights. I can read this guy's long dead. And then you read it, and they used to skip the line in the publishing world. I don't know if you're aware of this, but one thing you've ever noticed, like you go to Columbia University or whatever, and it's chiseled into stone like Columbus or you know Columbia or whatever, they used to use the letter V for two purposes, for the letter V and for the letter U. They would save having to make a new tool, which was very expensive back then, and they would chisel into stone. They would just use the same V for use. Yeah. So if you go to Columbia University, you'll see it chiseled in stone and elsewhere too. The other thing they used to do in printed books to save money, you know, you can almost see like W, U, whatever. You can almost make it work. But they used to use the letter S for the letter F or vice versa. So you'll go like, oh, it's very interesting. And you'll read it. And it's like, infra thing. And you're like, what the hell? So imagine trying to read that. And then like in your mind, converting it. And you're in this, stu- it was a nightmare. I'd almost given up. And I was like, let me just see if I can just beg these people to do it. And uh, I got in touch with the University of California. And they agreed to let me have the non exclusive rights. So you can skip me. I'm putting this idea out there. Anybody can scoot me in the translation of this 557 page long book.
0: But they, they're going up against an almost winning Nobel Prize winner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and That's we're a tough and better. And, yeah. And here's a serious competition. So I solicited some of my friends who are Italian you know, Brits or Italian Americans. And I asked them, would you read some of the voices of these characters? Because I think it'll be amazing to have kind of like Galileo's voice with an accent, Italian accent, but reading the English translation. So I got some of them and I was like, you know what, I'm going to do one more thing. I'm going to get the man who's, I'm going to ask the man who's considered to be the next Stephen Hawking and our generation, Stephen Hawking, uh, his name is Carlo Rovelli. Have you ever heard of him?
0: Oh yeah. I have one of his
1: books five lessons on physics. Yeah. Seven brief lessons on physics. Very good. Yeah. And then he had another book that came out when my book came out and destroyed my book called the order of time. That one was read. Yeah. That one was read by, and I'll put you in touch with him. He has a new book coming out in May. So he'll definitely, I'll put you in touch with him. Although you'll steal him. You'll get a better interview. You'll get more questions asked and you'll get a bigger audience like you did with (laughs) Avi Loeb. And we are going to talk about that, but let me get back to Carlo for one. I'll just finish it up. So Carlo Rovelli, our generation's most preeminent loop quantum gravity and explicator, etc. he's agreed to read some of the parts by Galileo. So imagine that, the, our centuries, Galileo or whatever, Stephen Hawking, now we get him and he's going to be a part of this book. Thanks to you for suggesting it.
0: You did it all because let's break this down a little bit. Yeah. First off,
1: you gave yourself
0: permission to do it. Like you could have said, Yeah. this has had centuries to be made into a, a proper book. Clearly they don't want to do it. Um, and who am I to just, you know, I'm not part of Galileo's estate. Somebody probably owns this. Blah, blah. So you gave yourself permission to at least find out and do it. And then you did the key thing most people don't do. You got in touch with people. That's right. Yeah, I had to take some of the, in- yeah.
1: I, I I called I'll, in- I'll,
0: I'll just mm-hmm. give you a quick example. Like um, my wife, Robin, was reading a book the other day that seemed really interesting. And she said, boy, this would be, a great movie or a tv series and i said to her why don't you call the author and see if the tv rights have been sold she's like you could do that do i is it like going to be expensive or anything we don't know we just have to call her and ask i don't know this book i've never seen this book before it looks interesting it was kind of a scandalous sort of book so later that day we had a zoom call with the author she did reach out got in touch the author was interested she explained that the particular book we were interested in the rights are sold I think actually to Will Smith until June and then it's up for grabs, but you know, option movie rights are not expensive. Like you could get movie rights for anything for not a lot of money. And then I I looked into her other books and there was actually a different book that I was very interested in. And that one I'm reading right now to see if I want to get the movie rights for it, just for the fun of it. Like I've never done that before. So it's an experiment.
1: Yeah, I'm going to do that, too. Uh, There's a domain, and I won't say this one because it would get a lot of competition. So there's kind of a bias towards how easy is it to do what we're doing. And you and I have talked about business ideas and and stuff. And we put it out there, even this idea by Galileo, because there is a huge quantum mechanical barrier towards a normal person. But, you know, buying a website is something that is something that people could do. And it's funny, I've had on Michael Saylor. I don't know if you know who he is. He's like, yeah, MicroStrategy. Yeah, he's been in the news a tremendous amount. He convinced Elon Musk to go in and buy Bitcoin yesterday. So he was on my show, and uh, and he was talking about like some of these investments. Now imagine again, we've talked about James Jim Simons, the world's smartest billionaire. He's on been on my show, he's got 20 to 30 billion dollars, uh, mega yachts, gulf streams, whatever. He is basically only lacking one thing. I actually got an asteroid named after him. No, wasn't good enough for him. He wants to win da, 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 a Nobel Prize. And it's conceivable. Some of the people that I've had on the show are Nobel Prize winners, and many of them. I've actually had nine on and that you gave me the idea to write my next book, which I'm about maybe 10% of the way through, and that's called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner. We'll talk about that when it gets closer to publication, but I'm working with Scribe Media, and it's going great. I've had on nine Nobel Prize winners, and I'm thinking, what should I do with this miniature army of Nobel Prize winners? Well, there's one thing and one thing only that Nobel Prize winners can do that is pertinent to the mission of Jim Simons, who is the beneficiary or the benefactor of the Simons Observatory. Let L- well, me yes. uh,
0: they can yeah. create a new category, mathematics, because math- <laughs> Tim Simons is a professor of math and he can't win a Nobel Prize because he's a professor of math.
1: That's right, although they bent and you know they kind of tweaked the rules, as as you know from my book, willy-nilly to suit their political and monopolistic agenda. However, what they can do is they can forever, once you win a Nobel Prize, you're forever entitled to nominate next year's winner of the Nobel Prize and they have an outside so they have a bias towards nobel prize winners that no other person can get access to until you've won the nobel prize and actually as i discussed in losing the nobel prize people do correlate the probability of winning a nobel prize to who your thesis advisor was if he or in the two cases that are still living out of 200 people she won a nobel prize in physics you can uh, expect a bump in your chances of winning a nobel prize equal to, perhaps greater than the bump you get from being born Swedish. But that's, uh, we'll talk about that. Oh, is there a a big bias towards Swedes? I forget. Yeah, there's a net bias. There's a net X. It's actually six times per capita rate of Europe at large. Outside, And that of still speech. applies, or is that an older- statistic? I don't think so. No, it's it's historical. It's just kind of a joke, but- It feels but, like a but, lot of
0: Americans now win most of the prizes, to be Americans honest. Americans
1: and Japanese win a tremendous amount nowadays. Yeah. Uh, but, and you and should
0: get, because uh, we were talking last time about you don't have a lot of females and you just referred to it. You should get Jennifer Doudna, the chemistry, a Nobel Prize winner this year. Yeah, if you know her, I would love to. I just had on Walter Isaacson, who wrote The Codebreaker, his latest biographies about Jennifer.
1: Oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, no, I'd love to get into it. I'd love to have Walter on, too. But the thing that Jim Simons most wants, the world's smartest billionaire, he wants a Nobel Prize. So I said, what resources do I have? I've already gotten him an asteroid, which costs nothing, by the way. But, you know, it's cute, floating around in space. I got one for his wife, my former babysitter, Marilyn Simons, who got most of her experience with dark matter, changing my diapers, as we've talked about (laughs) uh, back 40 years ago. That's funny. So getting back to Jim Simons, I said, maybe what I could do is construct a sleeper cell of the world's most crafty and original and brilliant geniuses, a cadre of nine people to pull off a super heist. No, no, not a super heist, but but to actually get them all when I activate them to nominate Jim Simons for a Nobel Prize in physics. That's my project for 2022. It's now, it's pushed out until we pass the deadline for 21. Now we're pushed to 22.
0: There's so many nominations that you really only need to get a few to ha- have him have a majority right? Because it's like hundreds of nominations. So you need 10 people or nine, like you say. And you know, there's a concept, Robert Cialdini writes about this in influence. There's a concept called reciprocity. So all the Nobel prize winners who you've had on your podcast, and you can claim you've promoted whatever it is they're doing, whether it was a book or a project or whatever. And you could say, Hey, would love it. If you considered this guy for this thing, there's going to be some, they're going to feel some cognitive bias to, to help
1: you out. Yeah, that's the old Ben Franklin effect, right? I mean, no, the
0: Ben Franklin one's a little different,
1: actually. Oh, okay. He, that's where you actually like borrow something from an enemy or, or yeah, yeah. then they feel he, obligated, then right? Then they feel,
0: it's a. It, I don't know. It's not mentioned in Robert Cialdini's book. It, ben Franklin's almost the opposite of reciprocity. Mm. You make them do for you. And then they feel like they're, oh, I must be the type of person who does Ben Franklin favors. Even though the guy hated Ben Franklin, he never
1: argued with Ben <laughs> Franklin again after that. And Franklin knew that. <laughs> that's right. So I've been trying to do that for- Uh, people. So like I had this guy, Michael Saylor on, who's now he's a billionaire. So I've got a billionaire's playlist. I have a brainiac's playlist on the Into the Impossible podcast. We're finally getting up to the logarithm of your level of skill with your magnificent mega mind engineer, J.O., who's somewhere out there in cyberspace. So we're upping our game, right? So I'm trying to think, what can I do with it? Well, that's one thing. The other thing was like, get academics investing in in crypto coins. And I was like, I, I got on this in, in January. Yeah, Bitcoin was like $18,000 or whatever. And like, no academics going to have, oh, let me just devote my whole graduate student salary to it. But you can buy fractions, you can buy Dogecoin, you can do. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of proud of that, that I was the first academic to really kind of embrace. I'm not pumping it. It's so flattering, James, because you know, what? the highest form of flattery is on my YouTube channel. Now I have trolls that use my picture of me at the South Pole as their channel name. They use my name and then they post, yes, yeah, thank you for watching this episode. If you want my guy, go on telegram and dial, you know, five space four three, you know, six, two, five. You know, and ben I'm just money like, too. <laughs> yeah, my my crypto wallet. So that's the highest form flat. Anyway, I'm trying to get this guy, Michael Saylor. I, you know, his video with me has been seen. 100,000 times or more, which is pretty good for my channel. I have 22,000 subscribers. I love each and every one. I fought for each and every one, as you say. So I did all, and I'm keep sending it to Michael, and I'm like, just retweet it, please do me have a favor, retweet it. And it's, he's just, you know, he's too busy to do that. But nevertheless, I'm just keep on putting, I did another one today or yesterday where I explained what are the thermodynamics. What are the uh, implications from a physical side uh, of the universe in terms of entropy of computing? How much does it cost? Do you ever think like, how much does it cost to eat to, to create a Bitcoin, not just in terms of the energy of all these computers running, but what is physically happening is like an entropic process. It's a process that goes back to the 1800s. It's not like advanced quantum electrodynamics. So I figured my audience is Sprite, brightest audience in the multiverse, as I say. And I always think it's funny, by the way, like everybody's like, get in my online course, take my Udemy, do my, you know, cohort based courses. And I'm like, I'm just putting all this stuff out for free. And the only thing I ask in return is someone like push the button that has a thumb on it. Like I'm not asking for like $20,000. My right. tagline now is like, I'm creating the university that I wish I went to like all yeah. these great months. You're going to be on next week, hopefully to talk about your book. And I'm, I'm just having so much fun with it. And, and again, all praise be to, to James.
0: Well, no, you're, 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 you're doing, you're doing the work. And you know, the thing is about courses and, and brands, people don't realize that you kind of have to forget the word brand. You have to forget the word monetize. You have to just for years and years and years. And there's, there's almost no skip the line on this really. Well, that's (laughs) not true because I have a lot of examples, but the best thing is just freemium offer something for free and you offer it high quality and you're authentic and honest and it's interesting and it's entertaining, you're gonna get followers because there's no friction of money. You know, you remember from the movie, The Social Network, how long did Facebook take before they actually started putting ads or, or making money? It was like seven years before they started making a single dime revenue. Same with Google. So yeah. they focused on. No, I love products. it.
1: It's it's like we can put out videos. YouTube advertises them for us. Then they send me a check every month. And because my uh, audience loves, you know, the the advertisements for you know erectile dysfunction and hair loss. So these are premium products, I suppose. So you know, I'm making. I, I looked up because like our friend Noah Kagan always puts it. Like he does these weekly office hours. I love his podcast. He came on the show a couple months ago. And, uh, yeah, and you were on his show. Guy.
0: He's a very clever guy. Very smart.
1: Yeah, he is. And he's become a full-time YouTuber. And this is a guy who was like number 30 employee at Facebook and, uh, you know, has millions of dollars, did a lot of good investments with Bitcoin, bought it at, you know, like $10 so he could... Download some illegal NFL stream or something like that, and just kept it. Now it's worth over a million dollars. And he shows it and every now and then. He shows his YouTube ad revenue. He just shows the screen like he's got one hundred and twenty thousand subscribers now, uh, which he like doubled in a year, which is amazing. So he'll show it and he'll show like what's his CPM, how many, how much, you know, does he get in revenue per per thousand listeners. And and I look at mine. I'm like, well, it's pretty close to his, even though he's got five times as many subscribers. So that that's like YouTube is advertising my stuff, is sending me a check every month. I don't have to do anything. And I actually, you can actually, it's the one medium that I know of, James. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you can place like subliminal advertising. You can say like, you know, bye. You can flash out like a hamburger. Sure. You know, or what? You can like, you they don't they don't monitor that at all. They just say like, is it safe for kids? Okay, well, you know, unless James is on the podcast swearing like yeah. a sailor and exposing his his nether regions, it. it is safe for children most of the time
0: i i've never i've never cracked the youtube code like i get a lot of it's funny cuz the podcast is popular i get a lot of downloads on the podcast it does not oh, translate yeah. when i put the podcast on youtube and i don't and i have a, i have like 30,000 subscribers i have a, a decent number just doesn't just doesn't translate but it's interesting like you know i listen to i watch a lot of the up and coming comedians And I've watched during the pandemic, I've watched their YouTube audience grow huge. And like one of the best comedians out there who's up and coming, rising, this guy, Tim Dillon, so funny. His podcast is great. His sketches are great. His YouTube video is great. He's got 230,000 YouTube subscribers, almost all from the past two years. And then I was looking at some of the guys who are streaming chess and they- crush him in subscribers so here's a guy who's a professional entertainer who's like one of the best in the world at what he does for entertaining people
1: and a good chess player will crush him in subscribers same with like clubhouse that jay's trying to get me to go on i'm like you know do i want to go on it like oh you could get like a million subscribers and i'm like okay but am i gonna like put on any content like is it gonna be fun for me is it gonna be an experiment that is going to return something either in terms of time you know the one thing you know I'm going to quibble with you, and and we're gonna we're gonna have a, a knockdown drag out argument. Is like when you have an experiment, you can only you know do a few experiments at once. You can actually do more than one, as you know, as yeah. you talk about. But um, but you know then there are experiments that are like hardwired in, and and the one hard thing to know from science, and this is what I, I haven't finished the book. I'm about halfway done. I've only had it for like three days, and I'm just like loving it. I'm wondering, you know, like how it ends. So I'm not going to spoil it right now. But we always think about how do you end an experiment? When do you turn off an experiment? Let's say you detect the Higgs boson. Okay, that's fine. Now they turn off. But then there's other things. You detected uh, gravitational waves for the first time. I'm actually having a Nobel Prize winner, Barry Barish, who won the Nobel Prize in 2017 for the detection of gravitational waves from two black holes that crashed together, each one weighing 30 times the mass of the sun, crashing together at 90% of the speed of light all to produce a signal detected a billion years later on earth, winning this guy a Nobel prize, okay? Wow. He requested that he come on my show for another time to interview me <laughs> about my book. So this is just an insane, right? And one of the things I'm gonna talk to him about is how do you know, and he's in his eighties, like, how do you know when to stop and pivot your experiment?
0: That's a great question because it's just like games. There are There are some games that are finite and there are some games that are infinite. And there are some games with perfect information and some games where there's imperfect information. Chess is a game with perfect information. There's nothing hidden. Like both players see the exact same thing and can come to the exact same conclusions. Poker, the cards are hidden. I don't know what's in your hand. You don't know what's in my hand. So we may come up with a range of hands you could have and assign probabilities to each possible hand and then make decisions according to the expected value of the possible hands you have. That's in an ideal scenario, that's mathematically what you would do. Yeah. And you have to do that because there's there's imperfect information and there's probabilities. With an experiment, sometimes you have an experiment with perfect information. Like I did this and this happened. And it's conclusively, if I heat water to this temperature, <laughs> it turns into sea, steam. That's pr- done. Um, other things you just don't know. Like, uh, uh, you know, is this asteroid- from outer space, or
1: is it not? We kind of do more experiments on it. So that was actually one of the things that I definitely want to talk to you about today is this Avi Loeb, who you had on the show, I had on my show, astronomer, former chair of the astronomy department at Harvard. He has a theory that this object that came uh, fairly close to Earth on my birthday, September 9th, in uh, 2017 or so, that object is definitively, uh, w- to within the realms of calculational confidence interval, came from an alien uh, civilization constructed for those purposes. Right, and I and so I asked all the
0: questions that were sort of in the media, uh, you know, or all the other assumptions that it could be. The only thing I didn't really ask him was, is it coincidence that it, you're suggesting this is a solar sail when that's your research? And the only reason I didn't ask that is because I figured, that question doesn't really have anything to do with the statistical likelihood that it's something as opposed to just a solar sail.
1: Right, oh, it's, oh no, it wasn't a solar sail. It was a uh, It was a sheet of carbon fiber meant to absorb, you know, ther- um, thermal waste heat. Oh, forget it, I don't care about that. You know, it's like, no, yeah. that's still very, right. um, yeah. but, but what you said uh, two sentences ago about, you know, when you turn off an experiment, when you know something has been conclusively proven, that's where I differ with my good friend Avi Loeb. Um, who, by the way, is being like, um, he's being savaged, seriously, online. He is being attacked by all the major magazines. Jerry Seinfeld wrote an op-ed about no. him. No, no. He didn't, yet, not yet. I, I asked him um, if he was being kind
0: of attacked in social media, because that's the sort of thing, no matter what your field is. If you write, A, if you write a pop science book, you, your colleagues don't like that. B, if you yeah. like, if you write a pop science book that also, you know, is about something that's very Lowbrow, like the search for extraterrestrial life. It's a little bit low brow. He would argue that it shouldn't be lowbrow, and I agree with him, but the reality is it is. So yeah. I imagine he must be savaged by his colleagues. Oh, he's
1: getting he's getting savage and all these people are you know common. He was the chairman of the Harvard department, astronomy department. All right. Yeah. So and he was on Joe Rogan, a million people saw him on Joe Rogan, this other podcast, who's kind of like my uh, Lex Luthor, uh, the, my my main nemesis. His name is uh, Lex Friedman. Um, really, uh, I'm really always trying to get him on. Get him, get him on my show. I'd love to go on his show. He's had on not only Eric Weinstein three or four times. He's had on Eric Weinstein's son, Zev Weinstein, who's a good friend of mine. I'm actually tutoring Zev and working with Zev on film. Like you've had on his son, and you won't. Anyway, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not bitter about Lex Friedman. No, I love Lex. If if you're out there. Um, But uh, but but the thing is, you know, he's so he's got millions of people viewing it and they're all saying very similar things that they say to Eric, which actually proves that these people are not coming from a place of of the true essence of science. As you were saying five sentences ago, science is an infinite game. There's no such thing as I won science. Oh, okay. We won. It's no like all the skills, just like you say in the book. There's no skill business. There's no skill like the podcaster. It's it's a set of skills. There's no skill scientist. So those things that have an infinite aspect to their game have no winners and losers. And there is no one thing you can say I have completed it like podcasting, like comedy. There's no like winning comedy, right? Like even Seinfeld. By the way, you realize you're talking to someone extremely brave. Right now, because I am a university professor, uh, a university Jerry Seinfeld considers to be an unsafe space. He refuses to play universities. He only comes on universities in the past to find his for, his next wife. No, I'm just kidding, Jerry. Jerry, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that was out in Central there.
0: Park. That was in Central Park. That was Central Park, Park.
1: Central, okay fine. Yeah. But he considers universities to be unsafe space. I teach there. I'm there every day. So Jerry, you got to grow some, and you got to come on. Come on the Into the Impossible podcast in person on the campus. Because he is
0: probably listening to this podcast. I guarantee you, he is obsessed with
1: me. I have to get a restraining order against
0: that guy. (laughs) Like, lose my phone number already. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldrich, would you like to apply to be VP of en- Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because of a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. of the kind of person who needs Hims, That's com slash James for your personalized treatment options. himscom slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See himscom slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan.
1: Getting back to Avi, yeah, he's been savage, but the reason that I don't believe that he believes his hypothesis is the following. It's not only because he's involved with solar sails, he's also involved with this project to send microscopic spacecraft to another uh, star system, which you know some say we received a message from or some sort of signal from at the end of 2020 to make the year close out on a weird note. It was going so well until the end of 2020, and so he's sending spacecraft there eventually, but... I said to him, Avi, if I knew that this object came from outer space with the confidence interval that he assigns at 91%, that means it could only be 9% chance that it's a fluke observation. That's pretty good odds in science. That's that's better than most things that I've claimed in my life to be true. Like, honey, no, I was 91% sure I was at the bar. No, I, I promise you, honey. But this claim, I said, how do you know that it's going to come back again? So I was like, instead of investing $0.1 billion dollars in going you know sending like little iphone 4 cameras to proxima centauri b how about you just convince yuri milner your billionaire buddy to send a satellite a rocket to oumuamua the object that he claims definitively came from another uh, civilization oh, yeah, send it out there. And he's like, no, we're going to discover more. I said, Avi, you never know when you're going to discover more things. Like if if Einstein had been, you know, had, had waited for confirmation beyond, you know, the 1919 eclipse, it turns out that wasn't actually confirmed for definitively to scientific standards, like my fellow astronomers really would care about. The public believed it until the '50s or '60s when radio astronomy came about. So imagine, you know, if we said, oh, well, you know, Einstein, you can use this radio telescope now," which hadn't been invented back then, but let's say it had, been. and he said, ah, "No, we'll wait because we're going to discover a lot more uh, with radio astronomy," or, or let's say, "Go out do the solar ex- eclipse expedition, 1919." No, we'll just wait till radio astronomy. Come. No, I would be putting everything into it. I would be convincing anyone who would listen, we gotta go visit Oumuamua right now.
0: Right, and that's in the solar system as opposed to sending something to another solar system, which would take, how long would it take to send something to Proxima Centauri? Like a hundred years, thousand years? They think
1: Well, so Yuri Milner, who's this eccentric Russian billionaire who funded this breakthrough set of initiatives, one of them is called Breakthrough Starshot. Uh, which sends, uh, which is going to send objects. So the, the stipulation by Yuri Milner was it has to be done in his lifetime, and he's in his mid to late 50s already. So they said 20 years to, to travel there. Then it takes four years to beam the images back from Proxima Centauri B, because that's how many light years away it is to the Earth. So something like 25, 30 years from now, they claim they'll have it back this object could be reached now Oumuamua it's not that far away it's traveling as fast as as you know as some of the Voyager satellites that we've sent out but if you're going to send uh a a series of craft, to reach a star four light years away that's something like a trillion times farther away than, than Oumuamua is right now. To me, I didn't feel like he really believed it. And for, from that perspective, that was the most kind of convincing thing to me. Not the like, oh, he's talking about aliens with prosthetic foreheads. And no, actually, you know, he's he has an unassailable kind of record of publications, of a track record, et cetera. So I believe his scientific arguments, but when it comes down to like, you know is he going to put his money where his mouth is is he going to have skin in the game which is james's next book after skip the line uh I'm oh sure oh, the
0: book skin in the game is uh has been written but i blatantly just and even admit it in the book that i just take the ideas from it
1: <laughs> that's right <laughs> in one He's chapter not not in the book but in the in one mini chapter uh-huh. <laughs> so you know it's, but it was an interesting exercise in in kind of science politics just seeing how many people the eminence level of people people i've had on my podcast like the astronomer royal of all of great britain lord martin reese he's the man who tells the queen her horoscope every morning uh this uh, he came on my show and he's now like criticizing avi for these same things so i've been trying to like you know offer Avi some support you know again i'm gonna have him back on the podcast i'm sure does he get upset He's not on social media number one so i think that's the first step and uh, and step number two you know is that he he's you know he he's kind of like preternaturally as you noticed from the interview with him he has this preternatural self-confidence some say ego and that is you know because he is israeli and you know james that the nickname for Israelis, our fellow uh, Semitics over there, is the Sabra. Now, what is a Sabra? It's a cactus. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. so like that tells you, like, oh, the, the most you know, endearing, uh, touching name you can give to Israelis is a cactus, like spikes and thorns on it. So he's tough. He can handle it. I'm not worried about him. You know, he's gonna he's gonna do well. The other thing I felt about that you know book is is that you know, there was sort of veiled, you know, comparisons in some way to like, if you don't believe in, if people didn't believe in Galileo, I mean, he talks about it. Then he'll say, I'm not comparing myself to Galileo. And then he'll say, people also thought Galileo was crazy. And it's like, you know, I get emails every day, you know, Professor Keating, Einstein was wrong. In fact, I know when I say this, I'm going to get emails, you know, when after the day after this airs, And it will be, you know, like, I know you said this about Einstein. uh, And so actually I've gotten a friend who's an eminent scientist himself. And now anytime someone sends me like a theory of everything, like I'm sending it to him and he's going to review it and tell me, is it worth my time? You know, kind of like a bouncer, like an intellect, you know, before you can skip the line, you got to get past this bouncer. And this bouncer, you know, is going to evaluate, you know, does this person have anything to it? but I get those every day. It's like, um, you know, people thought Einstein was crazy. They think I'm crazy. Einstein won a Nobel prize. Therefore, you know, help me out and you'll share the Nobel prize with me.
0: Yeah. It's a a false equivalence. Yeah. (laughs) Although it could be, who knows? I was wondering that because I was talking to Walter Isaacson who wrote a biography of Einstein, how much of Einstein's perceived genius. And of course he was a genius, but how much of it was just, he has this enormous charisma. He has this very special look compared to a lot of scientists, you know, mm-hmm. with the crazy hair and eyes and everything. And uh, how much of his fame is due to the fact that he looks like the cliche of a genius?
1: That's exactly right. There's actually a book coming out, which, uh, which we'll, we'll probably get to uh, at the end of this episode or later on. But um, there's a book coming out by someone I met on Twitter as a professor at NYU, uh, Charles Seif, I think is his name. Anyway, it's called Hawking Hawking. So it's like the business of Stephen Hawking. And I, I did an interview with- I love that with, a title. Yeah, I know. It's a great title. And I wish I had thought of some of the items within it, but this professor is talking about how Hawking kind of had this industry. And I noticed it when I met Hawking in 1995 at the Royal Astronomical Society, I, you were gone. That was the one year you missed it in, in, in Greenwich, England. Um, <laughs> I know, I always but,
0: regretted that because so Stephen was there and we
1: hadn't caught up in a long time. <laughs> That's right. You guys haven't played chess or arm wrestled yeah. in a while. Right. Um, so, uh, so, and I remember somebody asked him, and this is back when he could answer, you know, and given enough time, he could come up with, he could move his eyes. He could move one finger in the mid nineties. And then he, that all left him mm. that ability. But someone asked him, why did Professor Hawking, why did you write a brief history of time? It's rumored that no one's ever finished it. Who started it? And actually at that time I had started it and hadn't finished it. I, I just finished it a couple of weeks ago, actually. But anyway, um, so it was true. And so this woman asked him and like 10 minutes go by and he's like moving you know, his little finger. He could do a lot with that little finger. He had many kids after, after developing ALS. But anyway, getting back to uh, Stephen Hart. So he answered, why did I write the book? I needed to pay for my daughter to go to college. And everybody laughed. It's kind of a cute line. But I realized in retrospect, it was really true. I mean, he had to have a, 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 an entrepreneurial spirit to his, to his career because he had so many dependents. Um, he had so many needs in terms of medical care and he had many ex-wives to support. Not that you know about anything about that, but, uh, but he, had, uh, he had to be turned, James, every two hours in his bed and he had to have his tracheostomy, you know, his hole that he had so he could breathe and not choke to death. Every two hours, he couldn't tell you that he was in pain. Like he felt pain from like lying in bed. It wasn't, it was just, he couldn't move his body. He he felt all the same feelings that you and I feel. And and so he needed to support his family. And I don't begrudge him for that. I kind of thought of it as a joke and I called it in my interview with his his most recent colleague, Leonard now who wrote a book called The Drunkard's Walk and is a very eminent uh, scientist and, and author had him on my show and i was like yeah he was kind of like hawking ink and 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 he even so much as when he uh when when he wrote a brief history of time he kind of like reneged a little bit on the initial contract and went with a different publisher no one had ever heard of called bantam and now they're like huge and he made this whole publishing industry so much so that when he wrote his final book which is the coda which will we'll kind of like segue in later on when we talk about theories of everything that he signed a book contract and then in the uh, for the grand design his final really final major book, and and then he reneged on it. Just like no, I want twice as much, twice as big in advance, and he got it. And and it was all because he needed to have uh, to look after his children. and He knew he was the breadwinner, and he had to take care of his wife and his children. And and I don't think it was you know, it was really, so anyway, this biography is really, um, I'm interested. I just got an advanced copy of it. I'm going to have the author on in the, um, in the spring. Yeah. But it's about him as a business, a Hawking, Stephen Hawking.
0: And, And so your point, I guess, is that part of the reason, obviously we know of Stephen Hawking, we think of him as the smartest man ever, which he's been referred to as is because he wrote a brief history of time, which was a very successful book. But at that time when he wrote that though, he was already like, the most distinguished chair at whatever it is, Cambridge. And, uh, you know, he already had kind of proven his his genius, but maybe he wouldn't be so much in the popular imagination as a genius if he hadn't been out there. And right. just like Same Einstein, with Einstein was, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and Einstein also came from a very, just like Stephen Hawking because of his illness, Einstein also came from a very alternative background. He just was he wasn't in academia when he came up with his greatest theories. He was a patent clerk in
1: Switzerland somewhere. So uh, that's right. Yeah, he was. And and you talk about this and skip the line in a very perceptive way. And I've been thinking about this. You talk a lot about a scene in your book, and I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of like a tribe, like what are we building on the Into the Impossible podcast? You know, I'm I'm always saying we're building like this multiverse of mega minds, you know, just connecting people, creating the university you wish you went to. Uh, For one thing, you know, the tuition's pretty low. I do offer attractive student loan rates on my YouTube channel. And you can go in your pajamas, unlike, you know, the, the formal attire you wore to college classrooms. So, you know, but it's like making a tribe. And you talk about his colleagues, Grossman, and Besso in that book. And I've been thinking, like, you know, how often in life do you get a scene, but you don't realize you were in a scene until after it's gone? Like, you know, the Beatles were the scene. Like they were like, well, they not were just together. the Beatles,
0: but like the, the Beatles would hang out with Eric Clapton and the Rolling That's right. Stones. Like they were, they would like, they were all broke and they would like share a van to see some uh you know obscure rock group, you know, called The Who
1: or whatever, uh, you know, 50 miles away. Right. The Rolling Stones, the same. and But, you know, what is it about somebody that allows them to recognize when you're in the scene, like when you're in this group of physicists, when, you know, Penrose, Roger Penrose, who's been on my show, won the Nobel Prize this year, and and Hawking were close collaborators, they differed on some, you know, like the Beatles, the most famous thing, or I was listening, you know, like my my kids, and I take them to school. For some reason, these cute little babies, they love to listen to Guns and Roses. And I didn't like, you know, when the album came out, I was like, ah, heavy metal in the 80s. I was into the Beatles and stuff back then. And I was like, I didn't like the hard rock, heavy metal. I wasn't as into it when I graduated from, from high school in the late, late 1980s. But I'm listening to it and it's like, Axel Rose had this like phenomenal voice and like they had this ability, like Stairway to Heaven. Like it has, it's so popular because it's, it's like the honey roasted peanut of songs. It has like all these different stimuli for different aspects of your musical taste buds. And it drives your brain into overdrive and just look and like Paradise City. It's got like this operatic, like, I'm just like, F these guys, man. Like why do they have to break up? Like, why couldn't they keep their crap together? And yeah, it just like, made uh... me think like,
0: Use your illusion was and I don't like I don't like metal either, but use your illusion Me. was a great album. And I sort of view it as it was it was like this bridge, and maybe people would disagree, but it was this bridge between metal between like hair metal, which was kind of like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire was like hair metal for for heavy metal. But it was like this bridge between hair metal and grunge
1: because they kind yeah. of had a
0: similar a uh, uh, philosophy to grunge, but it was a metal sound.
1: I'm just wondering, you know, is there any way? that you can, you know, recognize when you're in it. You know, it's like they say about inflation, like John Maynard Keynes, one of the great economists of all time was, you know, like inflation, which we're experiencing right now. is like something so subtle, not one man in a million can perceive it. Like, is that flow combined with scene combined with, you know, like just just the network effect, Is, is there some way to perceive it? Is there like an early detection system so you can know like, like, we shouldn't shut this experiment off. Like, this one's gonna, like, it hasn't produced yet, but we have all these tools in this Altucher checklist, you know, or whatever, heating Altucher, and, and let's not stop. Let Let's just see where this thing goes. What you could do to see
0: if something's a scene is, well, first off, you have to all be interested in the same thing. So like Mick Jagger and John Lennon were obsessed with music, for instance. So that's why they were so obsessed with music that they could relate to each other in ways that, other people couldn't like everybody would be like, why are you fooling around? Get a real job, you know? And cause they didn't have any money then they didn't, they, they were pursuing this with no other goal other than their love for it. Same thing in the fifties with Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs hanging out together. There was a whole scene among the beats, same thing really in the seventies, there was no money in microcomputers. It was, a, it was, they were, they were hobby kits, but you had. Guys like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates hanging out at the Homebrew Computing Club in San Francisco. Like, who would think that they would be multi-billionaires afterwards? They were. Steve Jobs was selling, like, illegal Captain Crunch phone cards so you could make illegal phone calls. Like, they, they were just trying everything. So there's this quality of, like, passion for what you're doing. But also, in terms of seeing if something's a scene, you could treat something like a scene and see what happens. So, like, take podcasters and... Kind of the latest wave of narrative nonfiction writers, of which, for instance, you're one. People like everybody from Ryan Holiday, Seth Godin, uh, and then you have the podcasters like you just mentioned, Lex Friedman. You know, Jordan Peterson. Is this a scene? I mean, they've uh, some aspects of it seem to be already like the intellectual, the so-called intellectual dark web. But I, I think there's a scene of podcasters where you 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 know nobody's really competing. People sort of help each other. It more yeah. or less happens in comedy too. Like you could recognize, at least from the outside, I could see where there's a scene in comedy and and the different scenes that exist. So mm-hmm. I, I think you could kind of detect it or at least you could treat your, if you if you love something, you could treat your group of friends who also love the same activity as a scene and, and see what happens. Do you help each other career-wise? Do you help each other creatively? Uh, all of those things yeah and, you know no no success is done by a single person. Like I like right. the example of einstein i I
1: use in in the book, right. yeah, I suppose it is true. and even uh, it's it's unusual that that some tactics or or things um or some observations like you just made, as you said it, I'm thinking, well, is that true in infinite games and in finite games? You know, it's one thing if like you know you and I are um you know, like performing in a comedy club it's true that only one of us can perform at a time, although that might be kind of an interesting idea, like have two comics at the same time, like doing simultaneous monologue. But anyway, I'm getting, uh, I'm just so buzzing with ideas from from your book. Well, that's good if i get if i get a potential nobel prize winner I'm buzzing with ideas for my book it's probably a good book i'm just saying it is an awesome book no i'm i'm really and i'm so uh touched by the way i showed it to my wife as soon as i said look i'm famous i'm you mentioned my name you know next to uh next to jeffrey epstein that was so nice and you. you didn't need to do that <laughs> uh, but meeting, jeffrey epstein you know all the <laughs> Jews who are really well known. <laughs> oh, the in Jews, and, and, and that's right. Uh, so, but I was thinking, like, is that true of like finite games? Like, if I'm reading Skip the Line, I can't be reading, you know, losing the Nobel Prize, right? So, but why do authors give blurbs to each other? Like, you know, why did I, I got like Kurt you Vonnegut know,
0: explains this actually because yeah. he, he blurbed everything he could because mm-hmm. it's free marketing. You're, mm-hmm. you're like you're you're. It's like an ad you're putting on the back of uh, a a a potential bestseller. So your name's going to be seen maybe a million times. So Kurt and Vonnegut
1: blurred everything he could blurb. Yeah, and the same with podcasting, you know, as well because you know you can only listen to one podcast at a time. Although I have tried one AirPod with with you, one with our mutual friend Jordan Harbinger, who I thank many times for introducing me to you again after we met back in. Uh, we actually met uh, almost uh, six over six years ago at our TEDx talk in San Diego, yes. but we lost touch. And, and then Jordan put us back in touch and like he didn't have to. And now we're like formally we are competing against it, but not really because it is this infinite space of people working together. So yeah, it could be a scene. And and what's so interesting is like these scenes are developing over, over Zoom or over Xcaster soon, hopefully. Uh, and, yes, and the point being... Yeah, I, I can't wait. Uh, and the point being that like, we, we want to share ideas. It's it's You don't make something. And then I heard from, you know, Seth Godin when he was on my show, he, he said something like, well, you know, making it is not even half of doing it. Like you have to promote it. You have to go out there and and pitch it because it doesn't matter how great it is. Known the fallacy that, you know, build a better mousetrap and everyone will be, you know, a path to your door. That was like in the 1800s. And, and we've moved so far beyond that. And it's just not true. It's not right. like the world ever beats a path here because there's 65 trillion other memes and YouTube channels. I think beating your head much more vigorously than I can.
0: Yeah, you know, people don't realize like you could be the best artist in the world, but you'll get nowhere without as uh what's it's John, John McGinley is, uh, Jay is the actor who has been on the podcast a bunch of times. He was in Scrubs. He was Dr. Cox in Scrubs. He like, he basically says like for acting, he he would often be the reader for Oliver Stone. And people have a misunderstanding. They think that they, that auditioning is hard. The movie director doesn't want to sit there. The reader doesn't want to sit there. They want to hire everybody who walks in and it's just, everybody messes up. It's more kind of a acts of messing up than than great acting that that causes, you know, the decisions. And he says, every now and then, an actor comes along with like magic fairy dust that they just, everything they do is is right. And they get the part and you need to have, that's part of being great at something. That's why in skip the line, I don't just talk about, there's a lot, there's plenty of books about how to learn fast. There's plenty of books about how to monetize, but there's other skills that are important of being in the top 1% of a field. And that's, it involves charisma and involves persuasion. It involves, you know, likability. And
1: so that's why I have these chapters on persuasion in the book as well. Yeah, they're all the micro skills. And, and I was reading that and I was thinking about, um, you know, probably Jim Simon's not going to listen to this podcast, but, um, but you know, when I first pitched him in the idea with my colleagues to create what would later become the Simons Observatory, I was just doing like naturally, you know, kind of putting on, you know, just like, here's a way that we're going to revolutionize this, how, how we're going to transform the understanding even, and I was hedging because I knew he was a hedge fund manager, most successful one of all time. And I knew that he would want to have, you know, some hedge against this thing going pear-shaped, as uh, as they say over across the pond. And, and I said, like, if we detect waves of gravity from the universe's earliest inflationary epoch, those waves would be indicative of this exponential expansion faster than the speed of light, et cetera, et cetera. That is a concept known as inflation. And that would be transformative. And we already went through, we, we already did the like audience reception of that in BICEP2, as I talk about in the book, like it's guaranteed to win a Nobel prize. So on one hand, you detect these waves of gravity, you understand the origins of the early universe, you perhaps unify quantum mechanics with gravity, an elusive goal that escaped not only James Altucher, but also Albert Einstein. Uh, He died never having realized his uh, ultimate goal in life, which is another part of experiments that sometimes you should do an experiment that you know you'll fail at. um, And sometimes you should do one that you could fail at. and, And I think you talk about this in the book. Yeah, most experiments will fail they will fail. Exactly. Um, but so I pitched it to Jim and I, Simons and I said, look, if, if we succeed quote unquote, and again, that's the kind of confirmation bias effect that I am on guard against now, ever since the BICEP two incident, I talk about losing the Nobel prize, but if we don't detect it, and in some way we, we detect, or we, we perhaps, you know, rule out or that, that particular theory, we might give credence or find other alternative things that are even more exciting because they would mean that the universe didn't have a single beginning as asserted by theologians and, and so forth for literally thousands of years. And so it's heads I win, you know, tails I, I also win. And the winning is either in the form of the shiny golden gilded idol of science that I talk about. Or it's understanding, you know, of things as revolutionary as the underpinnings, as, as as perhaps challenging the underpinnings of all of theology. And, like, he was just loved it. And, and so the guys next to me, these other scientists, just like, after they are like, wow, you're really freaking good at that. Like, you're very masterful at, like, distilling, you know, what. And I was just like, no. You know, back then I was like, well, you know, it's just not like I love this man. I love what he does. I love his vision. And I'm just telling him the truth. That's what every day we're going to wake up and do and and he and they were like wow you're a masterful you know salesman and you know in science it's not considered a great thing to be a salesman but you better believe that everybody in history as you mentioned we talked about hawking the the reason that hawking got the book deal that he did is because of a New York Times uh, Sunday Magazine special in the mid 1980s where he came to America and the author goes to great detail of like how he had these students with him to put him into his wheelchair, how he he kind of like had this masterful stage command. They actually call him like a salesman and that's when Bantam Books started to pursue him. And he ended up, you know, he was gonna publish it in like Cambridge University Press, I believe, which is his local publishing house. And he decided against it, got like 10 times the advance and he went on to this career Einstein, the same way you just mentioned, he had this salesmanship ability. Galileo, my hero uh, of science, he was a, most certainly a salesman. He named the moons of Jupiter after the funding agency that provided him the resources to do it. So salesmanship, Darwin had his, his PR master, Huxley, and, and others. And you know, when it's done for good, I think it's amazing, which partially is what astounds me about Avi Loeb. It's like, he's out there by himself. There's not a single other scientist that is really of, of significance comparable to him. I'm not even going to say me, you know, I support him. I love him. I love what he's doing. I love his courage. I don't agree with him hundred uh, percent. And I think he doesn't even agree with himself, as I said, but to go out there with, without a parachute, without anybody really, you know, behind him, it kind of reminds me of like the saying, I heard this recently like about taking a stand and you talk about this in the book like you when you feel fear that's a sign to go and move forward. Well, where do you not feel fear when you stand in the middle of an issue, when you take both sides? And I've kind of been guilty of this like, you know, either I'll I'll have Noam Chomsky on, I'll have Ben Shapiro on, you know, kind of like but but the saying somebody once said like if you stand in the middle of the road, you get hit by both sides of the traffic.
0: Yeah, uh, Scott Adams actually gave me this advice about podcasting. Like, to be the most controversial, take both sides and nobody will like you. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's funny how many times taking the safe route is the most dangerous route. So for instance, everybody thinks, oh, I can't be an entrepreneur. I like to have just a safe and steady paycheck. Well, guess what? During this pandemic, 55 million people out of 128 million workers filed for unemployment insurance. Mm. That was the safe road and yet half the country, the greatest country in the world, half the country basically filed for unemployment insurance. So yeah. all these things that are considered safe, working in a bank is safe. Well, is it? You have to work 90 hours a week. I, I wouldn't be surprised if people die younger because of stress and you don't make as much money as, you know, the, the best entrepreneurs out there. And by the way, not everybody in a bank makes a lot
1: of money. That's right. Yeah, I had on this woman, uh, Alison Schrader. She wrote a book called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. A brothel. And uh, she worked with this Nobel Prize winning uh, economist, University of Chicago, very famous guy. And uh, she went, she goes to like the Mustang Bunny Ranch. And, she's, uh, and it's a book about risk management. And, and the, and the point of the book, it's just so funny because she writes about risk management and then on my podcast, I'm like, well, what do you think about Bitcoin? And she's like, oh no, that's so risky, <laughs> but, but I, I'm not going to get into that. That'll, that'll come out soon. But what she talks about in the book is, is like all these things that people think are safe, but they're actually fraught with risk. And you wouldn't know anything about this, but like, sometimes people get divorced, you know, which I call yeah. the most powerful force. You know, why divorce is the most powerful force in the universe. why is that? it destroys half of everything you own. Okay, next, uh as I said, she said like it doesn't make sense to get married, you know, economically speaking because the risk is 50% uh people get divorced, you'll lose 50% of your of your assets, you know, economically speaking, it's far more riskier than it is than it is not to get married. And I was like, well, that's true, but like you think about when somebody dies, uh, you know, and like on their You know, uh, on on their tombstone or at their eulogy, their eulogy virtues or are people talking about what a great father they were, a great husband they are, and so yeah, just taking the safe position. Okay, so like you know, one of my one of my you know people that I'm close to, Dennis Prager. who I know now people are going to turn off. Oh, he's a right wing nut job, and he he doesn't believe in global warming, which is not true. But anyway, uh, you know, he's like even if you get even if you knew you were going to get divorced, sometimes it's even it's it's worth it to get married because you'll never grow as much as you do when you got married. So even if you got divorced, you still, you know, one of my friends, she's divorced. She still calls her husband, ex-husband's parents, her in-laws. And she's like, I'll never get married again. But like that process is, is really an interesting one. And like just avoiding risk all day, you know, first of all, I don't think it's living a complete life. Now, that being said, you know, like you took a risky stand with your New York City stuff. And it's like, I always just wonder at what point, do you listen to the fear? In other words, like I can talk to you. If I was single, I could say, like, I'm going to take like the super controversial position that you know Gavin Newsom is terrible. Whatever, I, I could just do that, well, right? And not that I believe that out there, he's my boss, but 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 you know, but at some level, like my kids are depending on me to have an income, and like I'm mortgaging other people, other uh, of the participants in the experiment of life that I might be taking, you know, they're also encumbered by the decisions that I'm making, how fair is it to them?
0: So there's a couple of answers. One is you don't do something because it's risky. You have a position on something that you feel is important to get out. And then Mm. you identify the risk. Like I wouldn't buy GameStock at 300 because I (laughs) want to take a risk. That would be an an insane way to invest. You might invest in something because you think there's reward and you've analyzed the ways there's reward. And then that's 10% of your job. In investing is figuring out what the reward is and then the other 90 or maybe 99 is just managing risk so you've already made the decision that this is a good thing to pursue regardless of the risk because there's some reward there but then after that then you really have to decide is what is the risk how do i mitigate the risks? is are the risks too much so for instance like you said for me when i was Particularly when I was younger, I would take risks that would put my family in jeopardy financially. Those mm. risks were far too great to, to take. Now it's it's everything, everything's a risk. When you make a a, a move in poker or, or chess, it's it's a risk. You're always negotiating something. If I make a move, I have to make sure I'm getting the right compensation for it to compensate for the risk I'm taking for, for this move. And the greater the risk, like let's say I sacrifice a piece or significant material, I need to be checkmating the other guy. That's how I I have to calculate enough to mitigate the risk. So great that I'm sure I'm winning. If I'm, if I'm making a significant risk, so that everything has to be calculated. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise, dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the US, and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more... Visit huntingtonfranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit huntingtonfranchise.com today. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display, Learn more at USA.com forward slash Defender.
1: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at Capella.edu. You know, my fi- favorite thing about uh, the risk of the economist walks into a brothel is like she talks about these different, um, these prostitutes and why they would exchange upside uh, for the safety of having you know, clients that were medically tested and they didn't have to follow, they didn't follow them home and they had like security. They gave up like some places, like 60, 70% of their income went to the house, so to speak. And uh, and I, I pointed out that like in the '90s, like the Mustang Bunny Ranch, one of these Bunny Ranches was doing so well that they were evading taxes left and right, and they eventually went into receivership from the U.S. government, who then proceeded to take the most profitable business in all of Nevada and run it into the ground. Then it went bankrupt, <laughs> and uh, that it was uh, taken over again. So like even the government, they can't even run a brothel. Uh, and 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 you're right. I see these kids on campus, James. They're on their phone. They're on their bikes. Uh, they're not wearing a helmet. They're texting, they're listening to the James Altucher show and they're wearing a mask. And I'm like, you know that they know about risk management. It's it's not like they don't know, and they're but they're they're taking they're not wearing a helmet. It's totally insane, you know. Right. And, because- and I say this to my wife, which I'm picking up the kids at school and she's like, did you wash their hands? Did you give them a hand sanitizer? And I'm like, honey, you know, if I answer this text, like while I'm driving and the kids are in the back, like they're a hundred times more likely to die of a car crash and daddy texting. And and it kind of brings up something I've been thinking a lot about. Like when I, and I'm doing another Prager University video about this, just to trigger warning, you should be triggered, you know, out there. But I'm doing another one and it's about scientists. And it's about this notion that science can reduce risk and therefore, we should um, we should trust scientists. And so, when you hear this phrase, James, uh, when you hear the phrase "I believe in science" or I'm, "We're the party of science" or "Trust scientists," what do you think of what What do you What do you think, and what do you think they think? What's the frame control that's being used there?
0: Okay, well, okay, right, because it is two questions. One is I've had enough scientists on this podcast and so forth. I've I went to graduate school with scientists and and so on. It's bullshit. <laughs> because yes. nobody really knows anything. Like the best podcast I had about the coronavirus was what I had a really good epidemiologist on, um, a big guy at Imperial College in England. He he advises the EU on how to handle the coronavirus and so on. But is he the guy
1: that did the, like, the uh, no, 2 no, million No, he, no, he's in
0: a different different department, this guy. Peter Openshaw, Dr. Peter Openshaw, mm-hmm. very nice mm-hmm. guy. And what I, I gave him a lot of credit because most of the questions he had, he said, I just don't know, we don't know. And most scientists don't know. And right. and then you have scientists in other fields commenting on areas they don't know because they think, oh, if I'm good at this one thing, I'm good at this other thing, which I know now from investing that that's not true if you're good at one the thing. The halo effect, good. right, the halo effect. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, like people always think, you know, chess players are smart. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's just <laughs> chess players are good at chess and that's it. So uh, yeah, uh, when people say trust the science, I think you can trust a process sometimes but I think they think that science is just, is the law. There's like laws, right. every every scientific theory is a law of the universe, which is just not true. There's very few scientific theories that are actual laws of the
1: universe. And this is really important for us to talk about because I think for people out there, when they hear science says, first of all, I think that the government uses scientists and on, on many different occasions, I'm not just talking about COVID. I'm actually you know, super knowledgeable only because of my friends that are COVID scientists, that are virologists, that are chemical engineers, that are drug discoverers, etc. So I only know about it and I do believe what they're saying is accurate, but... I don't know a single scientist them included who trust scientists in other words why are we telling the general public trust blindly trust scientists which i think means obey scientists i don't think it just means trust and i think people have this notion kind of like jack nicholson's line in the end of a few good men like he admits that they're doing something wrong but he's saying like you want us on that wall you need us on that wall i think the general public because there's this notion of science phobia that people aren't smart enough which in part is cultivated by you know my fellow scientists that science is only for the Einstein geniuses you're not an Einstein you can't do it Unlike the people that write me emails every day, uh, but anyway, the uh, that you can't do it, James. But you have us. You have the Nobel Prize winners. That's why every year, every four years, you find out you know which Democrat you should vote for. You know, from seventy Nobel Prize winners, or why we should sign the Paris Accord, or the Iran Treaty, or whatever. Seventy Nobel Prize winners. Seventy. And these are guys like condensed matter theorists that study topological phase transitions in nematic superfluids. Okay, yeah, that's who I want to tell me about Iran. Like, no, you know, the ultimate. Is they wanted, you know, Einstein was asked to be the second president of Israel. It's is a guy who didn't believe in the existence of nations. <laughs> like, and, and they asked him, and he was like, No, I, I'm flattered. I love right. Hebrew, you know, whatever. Because the halo related, effect.
0: But yeah, this relates to what we were saying before. Like, it's all about the narrative. Like, uh, Stephen Hawking built a narrative around himself. Albert Einstein did. Not to say they weren't smart, but they were also smart enough to know that public perception is a very important way to get your message out. I, and this is just an obscure anecdote, but. I was working, uh, when I was in grad school for a while, I was working on uh, what's called automated theorem proving, using artificial intelligence to prove theorems automatically. And there Mm. were two competing projects uh, and they were very similar to each other, but one was called NUPRL, N-U-P-R-L, and the other one was called the calculus of constructions. So- which one was more famous? The Calculus of Constructions. It was actually less sophisticated in every possible way, but it had such a cool name. Oh, I'm working on the Calculus of Constructions as opposed to what's <laughs> neutral. And like, uh, it, it's all it, it's all naming and branding. Why do people buy a book? People always think they don't judge a book by the cover. By definition, you judge a book by its cover. It's the only thing you see the, right. first, the first five minutes you're walking around the bookstore. You just see the covers
1: and you use the covers to decide which book to pick up and look at. So publishers never let you choose the cover. As I learned, they didn't let me choose the cover. And then I was like, all right, I guess I can not choose the cover. I'm going to choose a title. I came up with losing the Nobel Prize after, you know, testing it for 65 days. straight. No, I didn't do any testing. I just, it just sounded cool. I heard that if you have three or four word titles, they do better than, than any other, you know, super long title. So skip the line, choose yourself is even, you know, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to get down to zero words in the title at some point. I think if you have a call to action in,
0: in the title, that's good. Like, mm-hmm. so, um, choose yourself or think uh, like a Nobel prize winner, think, think like a Nobel prize winner. Or, um, um, also if you define a new word like freakonomics or, <laughs> uh, and, and if, I think also it's probably pretty good. Uh, it's hard to say. Like I, I like 48 laws of power, but that was such an, a, an intense, there's so much information in that book. It's easy to see. It's hard to say the title did it. That that was like a, a, a right. really incredible book.
1: But um and the four yeah, so, work I mean, week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's something that's 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 um makes the reader question but it gives them a little bit of knowledge so they feel like they they're kind of in a like oh i can i understand economics and i know what a freak is kind of sounds cool yeah so the, those those kind of things uh maybe that's part of the idea sex behind that but yeah the scientist thing for me nowadays is and i want to ask you if i say james you know the theory of evolution it's just a theory what what is it and i'm saying that i actually i believe that okay i'm saying it's just a theory what does that mean to you
0: well I've been thinking about this very issue because look at look at look at humans. Look at uh, the the Homo genus, which includes Neanderthals, Cro-Magnon, um, Homo sapiens sapiens, and and all all of these other human. There's been like ten different human sort of uh, animals on Earth. Well, they we we all have we now know we all have like two to five percent or one to five percent Neanderthal DNA in us. So that means our ancestors must have mated at some point with Neanderthals, which goes against what we know about the evolutionary tree, like different species are, or different parts of a genus, I don't even know how to classify them, are not supposed to be able to mate with each other. Mm -hmm. But- uh, But they sterile when they do. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I assume there's a philosophical aspect to the theory of evolution, which is the survival of the fittest, even in social situations. And then there's a biological one I, I believe in it roughly, but I don't think we fully know what it is because there's always the missing link that's referred to. We don't really know what came first, the chicken or the egg.
1: So- right. Yeah, we, we, we talked about that in the cosmic context as well. So I'll say this, in science, there's nothing higher than a theory. To say that something is a theory is equivalent to the highest level of evidence. We can't prove things. Remember, our job as scientists is not to prove things, it's to disprove everything else. And then what you're left with is factually acceptable within the confines of the current body of knowledge, you know, and that's why I say like, well, Aristotle was a scientist, you know, he was one of the greatest scientists in history, He came up with the laws of logic that we use to this very day and teach in ninth grade, you know, algebra or whatever. So he also discovered, this is very pertinent, I know, to your life, to my life, uh, he discovered that whales are not fish. Uh, he didn't prove necessarily that they were mammals, but he proved that they were not. So those are huge things that I make use of on a daily basis. Uh, he also thought that the, uh, that the, you know, the sun went around the earth, that there were four elements instead of the 116 we know to exist today. He thought that, you know, heavier objects fell faster than light. So like, when do you trust him? Like, uh, do you trust the, the whale thing or do you trust the, like, which aspect of the scientist do you trust? Um, Einstein. He, tremendous number of things, right? He could have won seven Nobel Prizes if the process were completely honest, accountable, transparent, as I talk about. He also had seven brilliant blunders that were completely wrong, including denying the existence of the origin of the universe itself, as we now know to be the case or believe is the most accepted paradigm. So scientists are always provisionally correct. So when do you trust them? Like you trust them on the uh, on a model, which is very well, different than a theory. So right. that's like, the what nature that I'm trying to get theory. at. Yeah, string I mean, theory is a theory, right? And, and that is in the colloquial sense of, hey, that's just your theory. But Pythagorean theorem, that's not like as, as up for debate as string theory is by a long shot. It's as close as we can get are the theory of relativity. We know that more accurately than any other thing that we know in science, pretty much.
0: Right, because like the Pythagorean theorem is like a finite, a perfect information, finite proof instead of game. Like you that's could right. prove the Pythagorean theorem. You could prove that prime numbers go on forever,
1: and that's yeah. it's It's and undeniable. even within the context of math, though, uh, as Gödel showed that the axioms under which underpin rather the uh, the Pythagorean theorem's proof or Fermat's Last Theorem's proof by Andrew Wiles, etc. Those axioms themselves cannot be shown to be self consistent. In other words, like the right. edifice is strong, but the the sand could be the foundation. And but much more so for physics which is the most fundamental, elementary. Uh, because, there's all... no,
0: because there aren't really first principles in physics. That's we right. Thought, we thought there were first principles, but quantum mechanics can't be explained by those first principles.
1: So, so there are no first right. principles that unify them. So then you get to this point where there's two different ways to come about what's called the scientific method, which Galileo, who you know? Thanks to your encouragement, I'm running uh, the for making producing the first audiobook ever done for him. And by the way, this is going to be like an annuity for my uh, kids and 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 friends and, and you know family to come. Uh, not going to pay very much, of course, but because he made so many books, he wrote so many wonderful books. And these aren't books like uh, you know just just ordinary books. Uh, you know about oh something dry. Uh, like these are books about like the origin of the solar system, the rotation of the Earth around the sun, etc. Etc. And as we talked about once before, you know he's just a beautiful writer. I mean, he wrote in such beautiful prose. He, he talks about like this thing Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death, and it's that you and I are really animated in his in Ernest Becker's perspective by wanting to stave off the knowledge of certainty that you and I are going to die. You know, hopefully at the biblical age of 120. Well, it's interesting Galileo presaged Ernest Becker's uh, thoughts and the denial of death. 320 years beforehand, he wrote, it is scarcity and plenty that make vulgar people take things to be precious or worthless. They call a diamond very beautiful because it's like pure water. And they would not exchange one diamond for 10 barrels of water. But those who greatly so so venerate incorruptibility, inalterability are reduced to talking this way by their very great desire to go on living and the terror they have of death they do not reflect that if men were immortal they themselves would never have come into the world such men really deserve to encounter a medusa's head which would transmute them into statues of jasper or diamond and thus make them more perfect than they are he's talking about like we're just pursuing bitcoin and podcasting and he 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 discovered the dunning-kruger effect uh you know really? he wrote uh, yeah he wrote the following he wrote um and these are in a book about, about the Copernican you know, theory of cosmology. It's just amazing. He wrote, the vain presumption of understanding everything can have no other basis than never understanding anything. For anyone who had experienced just once the perfect understanding of one single thing and had truly tasted how knowledge is accomplished would recognize that of the infinity of other truths, he understands nothing.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and this one quote I think about a lot because, uh, not that quote specifically, but that idea, if you think about it, everything, you could almost judge, is something worth pursuing or not worth pursuing? You could judge how much it's worth pursuing by A, if you love it, like you wouldn't pursue something that involves uh, setting yourself on fire every day, but okay, <laughs> so, so assume that you love something. Now, is it worth pursuing? is it going to suck in every other way except that you love it so right. every, and will you still do it yeah right mm-hmm. like galileo was willing to risk persecution torture death to get his ideas out because he loved physics and he loved transmitting knowledge so it was worth doing for him and a tennis player is he'll play tennis even though he's going to lose probably i think i think a someone who is great at what they do let's say it's a sport or a game probably loses about fifty-one or fifty-two percent of the time, because they're always playing at roughly their level, but because they're moving up as they're improving, they're always playing people who are slightly better than them until except they Tom, get to the next. Except Tom Brady.
1: Time. Except Tom. Except Tom Brady. Brady. Yes, who seems like magic somehow. You know, he's won more uh, Super Bowls himself. If he was a team, than like ninety yeah. percent of the teams in the league, including the former San Diego Chargers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
0: even know. I don't even know who's won many. I, only I, I didn't even Green know he was playing
1: it until I went on I went on a show last week called The Drinking Bros. Have you ever heard of this these part no. these guys? These guys are like insane. First of all, you know, like they make uh What's the guy? Cat Lewis or the guy who's like the super raunchy Jeff Ross. Let's say it's super. They make him seem like a choir boy. Like they curse every two seconds. Like the opening thing is like, get a freaking drink on. They've got like 10 million subscribers. They're super. And I was like, do I want to go on this guy's show? Like I'm going to get crushed. Uh, and and like whatever, I'm gonna get canceled, like for sure. Like they're going on, they're talking about like they had Scott Galloway on, and then he you know is like he's been on your show many times, and then they 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 had him on, and then like a couple months later he did something or said something like you know about like academic freedom, freedom or Trump or, or whatever he said, and uh, and they're like I'm gonna kill that guy, like and the guy's like an ex you know 82nd Airborne. I mean the guy is freaking strong, badass dudes. And I'm like, do I really want to go on the show? And, and I was like, all right, whatever. This Orthodox Jewish guy, I'm friends with Ari Ginsberg, if he's out there, I love him. He set me up on the show. And I'm like, all right, you know. Oh, wait. My, so my... I
0: know, I know Ari. He um he works for compound media.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ari's phenomenal. I think he's he's he, he's probably listening to the show because I think he found me after I was on your show.
0: Yeah, Ari uh Ari has performed once or twice at Stand Up New York. And and Ari's got a lot of the Stand Up New York comedians have compound media shows. And uh there are some shows. Those are the only shows I've ever been on where you are at risk yeah. of being canceled for being on those shows. There, there. But it's all comedy. But
1: people don't really get that. I know. I actually recorded. They. I was on another show. Uh, this guy Gino is oh, like this Gino attempt. and
0: Aaron. Those I are my. It. They are. Aaron and Gino are, and nobody would mind me saying this because it's, it's a fact. Laughs per minute. They're like the best comedians out there. They're, they're and I was like,
1: I was making them laugh. And it was just, yeah, I was just doing my stupid bits. But I was like, I'm going to treat it like an experiment. And exactly, like I did that last year. But you know what? I'm scared. So they sent me a copy of the show to release on my channel, and I haven't done it yet. Yeah, yeah, you can. not I'm just you like, can. I don't know if I want to. But the Drinking Bros. So I, I, I almost show.
0: Uh, produced a documentary with Aaron about cancel culture. But then after the mm-hmm. pandemic, I th- sort of thought he wanted to focus on just comedians. And I sort of thought after during this pandemic it was, it was a really a larger issue than just comedians. So, and, you know, it would have been a lot of money. I didn't really, it wouldn't have, it, I don't think it was the right idea, but I yeah. he's passionate about that
1: though. Yeah. So, you know, so I went on, you know, basic, you know, feeling like I had a decent time that time I can, you know, control the narrative, you know, not let it get out of control and talk about, you know, like the guy's favorite thing to do, uh, this guy, Dan, the host is, he's like, is to call someone an effing C word. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like I'll, I'll be pleased if I get out of there without him saying, it. but I get on there and they're talking about like Saren Kierkegaard and <laughs> it was like unbelievably fun. And I'm like, awesome. I can send this to like all my friends now. I'm not going to like put out my pop. but, but you know, guys are really intellectual and, and to have that conversation not happen. Because of this fear that I'm gonna be perceived, oh, like, you serious scientists shouldn't do that. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I'm trying to do things I find enjoyable. And those, in large part, can be aligned with what I'm being paid to do, which is to teach people about physics, to learn more about the universe, to inspire people. Because I feel like, and, and this is kind of, you know, I still think about what is my purpose of this podcast? And I think part of my podcast, the Into the Impossible podcast, is because I feel a moral obligation to the general public, to those that are interested. They are paying my salary in part either through National Science Foundation grants or through you know paying taxes in the state of California where I'm a public employee. And I have to give something back to them. Otherwise, I'm a parasite. I'm just like, uh, but then that made me think, James, well, I'm doing this and you know, I'm not even giving myself so much credit, but like I kind of feel like my next controversial thing is going to be, if you, fellow scientists, if you don't put your research out there in a way that people can understand, A, as Richard Feynman said, you don't understand it. As Albert Einstein said uh, in your book, you quote, you don't uh, fully you know, comprehend it as well. But also, you are uh, you are a taker, and you are doing a disservice to the profession of scientists. After all in russian again your listeners will correct me if i'm wrong uh, perhaps but in russian the word scientist means one who was taught i means probably a man who was taught but but it was a person who was taught right so that means by implication that our my job as a scientist is twofold to be a student but also to be a teacher otherwise i'm not a scientist
0: and let me ask you isn't it also to be curious right so basically hmm. you're you into the impossible it's a, right away that implies if something's impossible why are you going into it well right. it's because you 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 don't believe that something's impossible and so you're asking questions well maybe it could happen this way maybe it could happen this way so i think questions seem in science more important than answers because most of the answers turn out historically to be wrong later so it's really the questions that drive things forward and right. you know that's i think that's what your podcast is really about like We wanna know these things we have questions about. Now, some things we already know the answers to, like you've been explaining the beginnings of the universe to me because I'll throw out these ideas to you and you'll say, no, we know this, this, and this. So that one can't be true. That's the process of learning is to kind of ask the questions and be slapped down or pushed forward uh, depending on if you're going in the right direction or not.
1: That's right. Yeah, Daniel Dennett, uh, you know, and or, and or Richard Feynman. It's hard to know some of these quotes. Uh, the really juiciest quotes. You never know who wrote them, and you never can trust who wrote them. But either Daniel Dennett or uh, Richard Feynman said that science is the fact is is asking questions that may never be answered. Religion is answering as uh, are answers that may never be questioned. Or Feynman said, I'd rather have questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questioned. But again, when you hear science says or obey the science or you know listen to science, that's basically saying that you shouldn't question the scientist, which is actually antithetical to the greatest scientist in history. Actually, Feynman says that science, and listen to this very carefully, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts.
0: Huh. That's really Let that
1: settle for a second. And it's kind of like, you know, when I when I hear you, you've talked about this a lot. What was the number one threat um, pandemic or, you know, whatever that was facing trading on Wall Street in the early 1900s, late 1800s? Yeah, horse manure. Yeah. So uh, so what if they said, oh, we're going to get horse diapers, or we're just going to solve it by the same means that got us into it, like not thinking exponentially linear, you know, whatever quantum thinking, they were just thinking, you know, completely rote, whatever we never would have invented the automobile or we would have never known that the automobile can solve things. Now, so too with global warming. If you say like, we're going to solve global warming, which I believe in hundred percent anthropocentric global warming. It's true. It's factual. It's happening from multiple directions in science, not because 97% that's BS scientists. Oh, 97%. You know, there was a book, James written in 1931. It was called hundred scientists against Einstein. So scientists can be wrong all the time. And by the way, the people that put Galileo in jail, so to speak, which was like a sumptuous villa that Bernie Madoff would kill again to be in. Uh, this is like a villa with grape vineyards, with olive trees. I've been there and I loved it. I would stay there. I would pay $1,000 Airbnb to stay there. Overlooking the Duomo and Florida. it's it's exquisite. Near uh, his daughter, who was a nun, he she lived just a few blocks away, basically. So it was no uh, no uh, medieval torture cell with racks and so forth. But anyway, um, you know the, the 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 thought is that he was imprisoned by the stupid pope, right? No, the pope had scientists. The pope today has scientists. There's an observatory called the Vatican Observatory, which does outstanding scientific research. The people that put Galileo on trial were other scientists. They happened to fact check him, you know, the Twitter kind of fact check, fact check wrong by the Catholic Church, but it was other scientists. So don't ever fall for this BS that science is monolithic, science relies on the wisdom of, of the crowd. No, science is about questioning everything. And I don't know a single scientist who's worth his or her salt or uh, sodium chloride as we would say uh, that just uh, yeah i trust you oh brian you, you have a theory for the oh sure you're a scientist right i trust you but the problem comes in when we when we look at models so what's the difference between a theory a hypothesis and a model when you when you think of models besides you know being a supermodel what do you think about what do you think a model means i guess
0: i guess it's a set of first principles that you then are able to prove theories from so like I have a model of how um, relationships work. So if you say X, Y, and Z to someone in a bar, they'll uh, they'll respond to you. Well, now I have a model of rules. This works, this doesn't, this works, this doesn't. These are my first principles about how communication works in a relationship situation. And now using these first principles, I can go out and experiment and prove things and, and so on.
1: So it's it's not exact, it has elements of that. the The key distinction is that a theory is typically either going to be the result of a series of observations, say serendipitously, we discover the universe is expanding. And from that, we construct a theory that the universe began hot, compressed, dense, moist. Oh, okay. No, 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 but, but, the, but oh, yeah, uh, go let ahead. Let me sorry. change my definition,
0: let me change. So, uh, okay, a model of communication and human action might be that everything is based, everything you do is based on how neural chemicals are firing in your brain. So that's my model. And then from yeah. there I can develop theories. Okay, so that must mean when you're scared, cortisol is happening. So you might have harder time sleep, sleeping later in the day because uh, you have too much cortisol in your body. So that would be the theory from that
1: model. Right, so uh, so that is that 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 has elements of of uh, veracity for sure. There's there's two different ways of coming about scientific reasoning. I think this will be really interesting uh, for us to discuss right now. There's there's basically two different modalities that one can acquire knowledge in science. One is starting with some theory that you believe X, Y, and Z uh, is going to be responsible for some underlying observation, which you then confirm, or it could be that you make an observation, the universe is expanding, uh, et cetera, and then from that you induce a hypothesis and then it becomes eventually elevated to a theory. Those two ways of acquiring the scientific method, so to speak, are, and we never sit down, by the way, I never like after putting on my, my you know, my thick glasses and, and the lab coat, pencil protector, pocket protector, I never say, hmm, I'm gonna, today I'm going to apply the deductive formalism of the scientific method. No, but they're basically the two different methods are deductive from theory to observation or opposite inductive from observation to theory. And along the way, they have different they have different purposes. So an observation might be used to then forecast a theory, which will then hold in the future. Like I observe whenever you know fifty six percent of the day uh, that has this amount of clouds, this humidity, then the theory is tomorrow it's going to rain. Or it could be so uh, so that's constructing a model for the future. The other one could be oh I see um, I see I believe that gravity is actually the result of the curvature of space-time itself. And in so doing, I construct a theory, which then explains the fact that Mercury uh, behaves kind of whacked out and, uh, and it shouldn't behave that way. But because of my deductions from my theory, I can then have confirmation via observation. So observation always comes into play in either deductive or inductive. But my point that I'm trying to make is that, and this is called epistemology, the search for, for knowledge uh, and, and philosophy. And what I'm trying to get at is that um, models, in some sense, are useful because they allow you to predict the future. And, and what you know, I always open my show, the Into the Impossible podcast, with this quote uh, from Arthur C. Clark, who said uh, the only way of, of uh, finding the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. We talked about that already. He also said, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. That, then I actually open the show with a quote of him saying in his own voice, something I'm sure you've heard before, any sufficiently advanced technology yes. is indistinguishable from magic. What could be more magical, James, than predicting the future? So we think about science as having this ability to predict the future. Fine. In many cases, it does. But the question of something that cannot be replicated and therefore cannot be falsified Uh, That comes into play in the scientific method when it's done in this way so as to, you know, from inductive arguments, observe something happening, a pandemic is spreading out, come up with a theory and therefore a model that will then be elevated to enact science policy. And that's where my hankles, is that still a word, Uh, get raised because I feel like, you ever hear this expression, James, like separation of church and state, it's good for the church and it's good for the state. Good for the for the state because then we don't have a theocracy and we we know how that would work out. It's good for the church because the church doesn't have uh, overlords that are you know telling it that it's beholden to money and getting whatever, and so therefore it can operate independent and uh, as long as it meets certain parameters, right? So it's good for the church and good for the state to have separation of church and state. My new thing is, what about separation of science and state? Like science well, doesn't belong but, to any political party. It shouldn't, but, and it, but, and it really doesn't right and it's interesting
0: how political parties uh took control of science during this election yeah. during this past year but because there is a small role of science in state like science comes up with the vaccine and the state is responsible you know depending on your definition of the state the state feels it's responsible for the well-being of the people and so it needs science to kind of
1: it absolutely no spirit. scientists have to be listened to when it's their field of expertise what what i've gotten upset about lately and this is the topic of this prayer you video that i'm working on is uh, is the conflation of science and wisdom so mm. you actually said the word uh, the the latin word for wisdom earlier today and that's sapien And the word for science is, uh, a science, the word science in Latin means, as you know, because you study it every day in your page a day, word a day, calendar in Latin, Uh. excretius maximus, uh, that uh, the word science means knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. They're two different words. So... What we should not expect scientists have any special wisdom, and that's where politicians have to come in. We don't elect scientists to be to be you know establishing social policy, no matter how noble it might be. We elect politicians, Joe Biden, you know, who then appoints people to take the best science available and use it to make decisions, which hopefully benefit us. But to say I'm going to outsource, I listen to scientists, I think it's I, I think it's a, it's a misapplication. Due to the conflation of science as, as having wisdom, which we don't have. I, we I don't agree, have any more or less the same, wisdom. The
0: same thing happens to celebrities. Why does why does anybody listen to Kim Kim Kardashian's opinions about science, which we well, do Well, she has
1: an advanced degree in epidemiology? It's true.
0: Now, um, I actually have to jump onto another podcast, but okay. let's let's schedule this soon so we can continue the conversation and uh
1: uh and then there were some questions I had for you about bicep actually. Oh yeah, yeah. We got to finish up the ways the universe could begin, and the uh, we also need to schedule a you come on my show. So I'm going to set that up with Jay uh, afterwards. But yeah, I'd love I'd love for people to tune into the Into the Impossible podcast. If nothing else, there's three interviews I did with James, and uh, I've done interviews with everybody, ranging from Nobel Prize winners to billionaires and beyond. So that's on uh, YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating.
0: This is a great episode. A scientist answers: Is science bullshit?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and we did the uh, the first part about Avi Loeb and, and then we still haven't finished up our ways the universe could begin, but that's- uh, We always have more important stuff going on. We waited 13 billion years, so we can wait yes. a couple of weeks more. All right, James, be well. I'll talk to you soon. Sometimes it takes a different approach.